God sometimes tells us to do something, but then it doesn't really pan out the way we think it's going to. But then that drives us to do something else, and then it works out. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Daniel Stone. Daniel is a deacon in the Church of Jesus Christ, also known as the Bickertonites. He's a Ph.D. candidate studying American religious history at Manchester Metropolitan University in England and the author of a new book, William Bickerton, Forgotten Latter-day Prophet, just barely released. Daniel, two things. First, you are a U.S. citizen. You were born in Florida. That's correct. But you were studying in Manchester, and I think that's so interesting. You were there studying American religion. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) It's kind of ironic. (laughs) What do they have there that drew you to that program? Uh, My advisor, uh, Dr. Andrew Crome, he really focuses on millennialism, and I found that fascinating, how people would often see and look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and especially within American religion, that's a constant theme that's especially throughout American religious history. So I wanted to find somebody that could help me hone my skills and understanding of millennialism within the American context, and that's something that he focuses on. And I was just so thankful to be able to have the opportunity to work under him. Yeah, interesting to go someplace else to to find that having its effect in the U.S. Oh yeah, that was that was definitely not planned, and that was definitely actually part of my uh, faith journey. How that all came about, it was pretty un- unbelievable in my mind how that actually happened. Just so people can place your denomination in history, uh, this. Uh, At the time of Joseph Smith's assassination, and then there was some question about who would lead the church, and there were different folks who came up, more than most people know, Mm -hmm. uh, different groups that that went different ways, kind of forked, I guess I'd say, we're all cousins of the Latter-day faith movement. Oh, absolutely. And so some, uh, who we know as the Mormons generally today, were known as Brighamites by Mm -hmm. some of the other groups. That's who they had followed, Rigdonites, uh, Bickertonites. But the name of the church is the Church of Jesus Christ. Right. So tell me where it's centrally located and where most of the adherents or believers are. Sure. Now it's considered the third largest Latter-day Saint church in the world. It's in 23 countries worldwide, and it's got a membership of about 23,000 people. Within the United States, it's primarily concentrated along the East Coast, really started originally in the Pittsburgh area and then kind of grew out of there. So there's along the East Coast, really strong group in Western Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, kind of the Midwest. It's scattered throughout a few branches along the middle part of the country and then along the uh, West Coast, a lot in California, uh, some uh, strong branches in Arizona. Hmm. Well, that's sort of the history and a little bit of the sort of setting the table, but the meal I'm looking forward to is to invite you to tell us about personal religious experience and belief. I wonder if you'll just go right back to the beginning. What do you first remember about church or about God? The very first thought I have or memory I have of God is growing up, my parents would always teach me to pray. And there was always this idea that God was a friend. I never saw him as this big being that kind of ruled the earth with an iron fist. I always kind of saw this idea of God as a friend, somebody that was willing to kind of reach down to us whenever we needed him or just a friend to talk to. So my parents were very sensitive to that. And as a child, they had taught me that. 
The very first memory I have of actually experiencing God is I remember my parents were shopping for a new car and I was kind of excited because, you know, shopping for a new car is neat. It's something new and exciting that your parents are getting. And I had this cold that was bothering me and it was really ruining my experience. And I was in the back seat of the car as we were driving to the car dealership. And I just remember saying a little prayer to God. And I just, I mean, it probably was so simple as to, dear God, please take away my sniffles or something like that. I was real (laughs) little. And I remember instantly when I said that, my nose just stopped instantaneously from uh, having like, you know, the mucus. It completely cleared up and my throat instantly was not scratchy anymore. And I was healed. And I was so excited. I told my parents who were driving, I'm going, mom, dad, I don't have the sniffles anymore. I asked God to take it away and he did. And they just kind of looked at each other and went, Oh, wow. That's that's great, Daniel. <laughs> a miracle in our backseat. Right yeah, <laughs> exactly. While we're looking for a new van. <laughs> so right away, you made a personal connection to God rather than looking at a, a church as th- this is a place we go. Yeah, absolutely. But what was your path from there? My path from there was, well... I had these little experiences here and there, but I wanted to be a punk rocker. I love, I was in a punk rock band and there's nothing wrong with being in a band, but I, and I was pretty clean. Like I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink alcohol. I was, you know, what people sometimes call straight edge, but I just loved just jumping on stage and being in a rock band. I loved having sarcastic lyrics that would kind of get people on the edge of their seats and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that. Not really cursing, but just kind of some sarcastic, um, sardonic things, I would say. But after that, I was actually, what drew drew me closer to God was actually 11th grade American history of all the places. I had this amazing (laughs) high school teacher named Mr. Worcester. This is like setting the course of your life. You're still doing some version of American history. Yeah, it's so weird that you would think your 11th grade history teacher would be a spiritual experience, but it was because he was such a great teacher and it brought American history to life for me. And when I'm listening to the stories about American history, about the American Revolution, the Civil War, and certain things, I kept thinking, in my head going, because I never really paid much attention in church. And I was thinking, this sounds really familiar. I could hear, you know, you see certain themes that you w- yeah, I would hear in American history. And sometimes we talk about religion. We talked about Joseph Smith in the class. And growing up, I remember hearing these little things that I kind of wasn't really paying attention to. So it really piqued my interest. And then that got me reading more of the Book of Mormon, which I had never really picked up. My parents got it for me. I think I was 17 years old. And that's when I kind of had this thrill of reading. I remember getting it and I remember opening it in the back seat of our van and taking the wrapping off of it. And it was a leather bound one. And I was just so excited. And I don't know why. It was around that time of just learning about American history. And I just felt like I had something that I couldn't wait to read. Mm. And that's where my love for American history kind of came into play. Because when you read about Joseph Smith and the translation of the Book of Mormon, and even the stories of the Book of Mormon, it's all supposed to take place within the Americas. So it really drew my interest. And I'm wondering then, as far as as really following a particular faith or a denomination. Did you just realize I'm comfortable where I am? Or did you have a period of saying, well, I should be looking around. I should be checking out the other stores, so to speak, shopping. Yeah. 
you know what? That that never really crossed my mind so much because I didn't really know where else to. I was still it was still so open to me. Um, the church I grew up in, and even the, the my branch of the church was very open. You could ask any question, so I just felt comfortable there. And I just kind of, like I said, had this personal. I started growing this personal relationship with God of just looking at Him as a friend. So I just kind of stayed on that path without more or less looking on the outside. And um, as I'm doing this. I had this real moment where I really start believing. So I was interested in the Book of Mormon, just out of curiosity, interested in American history. But in college, I love that story in the Book of Mormon of Moroni and the title of Liberty. I think most people who grew up with the Book of Mormon do like that story. It's such an awesome story. He takes the, you know, the rips his coat and he makes this flag and he types, you know, he writes on it in memory of our God, our religion, our family, and such and such. So I had put that on my AOL instant messenger profile, <laughs> which nowadays people are like, what's that? But back then, they, that's how we still talked. And I remember there was people that saw that in college and they found that, that I believed in the Book of Mormon and they just made fun of me ruthlessly behind my back. And I thought they were my friends. And eventually we did become friends, but they were talking about me behind my back. And it was really hard to hear what the things they were saying about me. And I actually, in that moment, because I was still so new, you know, believing, I kind of said, you know what? Maybe this faith thing isn't really for me. And I was I, looking back on it, I go, Tanya, you're so silly. But back in that time, I really was like, this, I don't even want to deal with this. I want to focus on school. I won't really focus on my religion. And, uh, you know, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. So on that Sunday, my friend was going to go to one of the local branches. And he's like, why don't you come? You know, it was about an hour drive. He had a, a family member he could stay with. And he said, you know, why don't you come with me? And I just went for the ride. It was a weekend trip. And then we ended up going to church that Sunday. And there was a visiting elder, or you know, a pastor, visiting elder from the Michigan area. And he was in Florida because I was going to the University of Florida at this time. He's asked to open the meeting. As he stood up and he's about to give his sermon, he says, you know what? I don't know why I'm feeling prompted to talk about this, but I feel prompted to talk about Moroni and the title of Liberty. And I'm sitting in the meeting going, what? That's interesting. And it seemed just kind of coincidental. But then he talked about how Moroni had stood up for what he believed in, how he was proud of what he believed in, and how he wasn't ashamed. And I felt like it was talking directly to me. I had never met this man. I'm just sitting in one of the pews just listening. And that had really had occurred to me that, wow, that wasn't just coincidence. Maybe God really was telling me, no, it's okay. You can believe in this and you can like this and don't be ashamed. And that was one of those pitiful moments in my life where I realized that I wasn't even praying to God, but yet he saw my pain and saw that I was embarrassed and still like reached out to me and said, no, believe in what you believe. It's okay. It was, it was like the friend had just kind of took my hand and said, keep going. Kind of nice to feel like God was paying attention to me when I wasn't even thinking about him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what things in your faith life bring you joy? The greatest things that bring me joy, well, my little girl, Lily, she's just, she's two and a half now. I never knew the joy that I was so afraid of having kids, even though I wanted them. When I found out that my wife was pregnant, I was kind of like, oh man, you know, I'm in my late twenties. She's in her early thirties. I'm going, our life, what's it going to be like? It was, you know, are we going to have enough money? You know, all these things are racing in my mind. But when she was born and as she gets older, 
I don't know how to describe it. It's a joy that I didn't know existed. And it's just so much fun to watch her grow. And I feel like, I think like a lot of parents feel this way. You learn a lot from your kids just because they're yes. so, they're so fun. <laughs> and unfortunately they're so honest at sometimes. <laughs> like for instance, if you say now she's learning her colors and you're like, oh, what color is this? And then she's like, oh, what, like, what color are my teeth? Oh, they're yellow. And it's like, no, I would have preferred the term white, but you know, <laughs> Well, you mentioned reading in this in your copy of the Book of Mormon, coming across the story of, of Captain Moroni. I'm wondering, is that still one of the rituals or the things you do, personal observances, I guess I would say, what are the things that you do to connect with God? Um, the, the main thing I do to connect with God is praying. The way I look at praying is I just look at most of the time when I'm praying, I'm driving in the car. And it's really just thinking about God and thinking about things. Often I realize that Prayers oftentimes don't have, at least this is my opinion, prayers don't necessarily have to be a formal prayer like, dear God, you know, such and such and such and such. Just talk to him as a friend. Just have a conversation. And it could be in my heart. It could be in my mind. It could be out loud. And I find the greatest peace in that, just being able to talk to somebody that I don't necessarily see. And some people might think that's crazy, but for me, it's it's a medit- it's a meditative mm. uh, exercise that really helps not only calm me, but helps me kind of figure out what I'm going to do for the day and what are my plans for life and, you know, from the smallest to the greatest. Lots of people join churches, but not everybody agrees because we're human about everything that's said in their own congregation, their own denomination, which sends some people looking for a, a different pastor or whatever it might be. How have you felt or how have you dealt with times maybe when you, you weren't sure that you accepted what was being taught? Or, or even have you had those times? Yeah, I've had those times. What ended up happening was I was really interested in, like we were talking about, I'm really interested in history. And there was this moment we, I really loved it. I got my bachelor's and master's degree in history. And uh, I always wondered, you know, what am I supposed to do with my life? And, you know, and it's it's funny that I'm answering your question this way. I'll, I'm kind of going to go around it in a roundabout way where one time, my wife and my mother-in-law and I, we went to Washington, D.C., I think it was in 2015, and we went to uh, Mount Vernon, hmm. and they were enjoying seeing the sights of you know George Washington's home, and I wanted to see George Washington's grave, so they didn't want to go that far. It was kind of a walk. So as I'm walking, I'm just talking, like I said, just talking with God in my mind, and all of a sudden, I hear this voice inside me, and I hear him, I hear a voice say, I've called you to be a historian of of the United States and of my people. And I was trying to think like, well, what does that mean? But then the more I got into it, I had this great desire to learn about the Latter-day Saint movement and all aspects of the Latter-day Saint movement. So growing up as a Bicker tonight, you know, we have a set of faith and doctrine in certain things. But when I started expanding and looking at the larger Latter-day Saint movement as a whole, I realized, like you were saying, that, you know, there's a lot of cousins out there and there's a lot of similarities, but there's also differences. So I still believe in the fundamentals of what I believe, but I realize that those fundamentals are pretty much across the board. And there's other things that I kind of stay open, keep an open mind to. And that's what my faith journey found it so fascinating was because because I studied history, because I had heard that voice and I kind of stayed on that path, that allowed me to kind of learn more about not only my faith, but other people's faith. And it's really opened up my mind and it's broadened my horizons. And it's made, I feel like it's made me a much better, well-rounded person. 
And I just love talking to people who have similarities as me, but there's also differences. And it's really a lot of fun. So it wasn't necessarily a faith crisis, more or less, as it was an exhilarating experience to realize, holy cow, there's other people that are just like me, but they're not exactly like me. So this experience and feeling this voice or hearing this voice inside you, was that the kind of thing that just stopped you in your tracks and you thought, wait, I've heard about this happening to people? Or was it sort of just a more natural thing? It was a little bit of both. It felt natural, but at the same point, I kept thinking, is this really what's supposed to happen? And it wasn't necessarily an audible voice as it was. I heard it inside me. It was Mm -hmm. almost like something spoke inside me and I could feel it. Almost like if you are, you know, if you feel vibrations on a table, you feel the vibrations. That's how I felt and heard the voice. So it was really in my core. This is what's really interesting. So for me, going for history in the faith journey, after I got my bachelor's and my master's, I was wondering, should I go for my PhD? Because my professors were really trying to push me in that direction. But something in me kept saying, don't do it just yet. Uh, And then I was, I really wanted to to do the history, I had this feeling where I, so I actually go and I pray and I say, and I'm saying like, God, what do I do? This is where I'm actually having a formal prayer asking God, like, I don't know if I should go for my PhD or if I should do some writing. I feel this drive to write for whatever reason. Something in me said, do the work for me and I'll take care of the rest. So I knew that I probably should, because I kind of had the, kept these feelings of going along this history route, I should probably start writing. And the very first thing I was drawn to was William Bickerton, because very little had been written about him, even in my own church history books, which I, as I was started getting more into history, there's so little written about him. And that really intrigued me as to why. Believe it or not, it wasn't until halfway through my research, I had realized that William Bickerton on his deathbed asked for his story to be told. And that story was never told to anybody. It was kind of like hidden. It was almost like a cry decor from the grave. It was very tragic in a sense. You know, I'm trying to be the historian. I'm trying to wear the objective hat and trying to write, even though I, you know, this is my faith tradition. I'm trying to look at it completely objectively. What's what happened? And I'm trying to put William Bickerton as an American religious figure and within the context of American history. But when I read that, he actually asked one of the apostles before he dies, he says, when I die, I want Job 19 read at my funeral. Who reads Job at a funeral? It's one of the saddest books in the Bible. But Job 19 is a very sad story where Job is lamenting. And it's a part of it says, my kinsfolk have failed and my familiar friends have forgotten me. And another part is, oh, that my words were now written, that they are printed in a book, that they are graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. And when I read that, it struck me for saying, oh my gosh, not only was he saying that he felt that he would be forgotten, but he also was crying that somebody would tell his story later because he felt as if his story would not be told. So even though I'm trying to be objective and I'm reading this, when I read that and realized that I don't think you know I was some fulfillment of prophecy or anything like that, but it was humbling to realize that you're fulfilling a dead man's wish that you didn't even know that was his wish. Yeah, you started the project even before finding yeah. that. So as you look back, I mean, the subtitle of this book, William Bickerton, Forgotten Latter-day Prophet. What is it about him that gives you a sense or that showed that he had a sense of a prophetic calling? What I really enjoyed about William Bickerton was that he was very egalitarian. 
he was very much like Joseph Smith in the early restoration, the idea that I had this experience with God and you can too. And Mm. Joseph Smith pretty much had that until the day he died. And William Bickerton kind of carries on that tradition. So there's a lot of similarities. And I have a lot of respect for both of these people as historical figures. And that's what really drew me to him. Um, He really thought that it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter what color you were. He thought thought everybody was always equal, which was really interesting. He's a coal miner in 19th century America. And he actually thinks that white people and uh, African-Americans, that they're equal in a sense. And he even gives women a lot of power within the church. So that always struck me because, you know, most men of 19th century are not like that. So I really like that about him. And, you know, you see elements of Joseph Smith like that as well. So it, it really intrigued me. I think of the Reformation and Martin Luther or any of the other groups that they would just pull a congregation out from the general church or universal church, Catholic church, as, as it was termed. And sometimes they gathered out and sometimes they were kicked out. And so they found themselves meeting in small groups. And I have always thought, what would it be like to be in a group like that thinking, I'm forging ahead, but what about these five million other people who yeah. are all saying, no, no, we're, we're the real deal? Yeah. And when we look at the New Testament and Jesus and calling his disciples and his apostles, and we read uh, one of a town, two of a city, all of that, numbers don't really matter. But do you ever scratch your head and think, I am part of a fairly small denomination. Oh, absolutely. That totally crosses my mind quite a bit, especially once I got into my PhD program. So that's a perfect transition for how that my faith journey kind of grew. So after I wrote the book and published it, then I thought I never wanted to get my PhD. So I had that prayer, right? And then I'm thinking that after writing, going through the book, and I just kept thinking, I don't want it. But once I finished writing, and a publisher wanted it, I had finished it. I'd finished this job that I wanted to do. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this feeling comes out of me saying, now's the time to get the PhD. That's what struck me because now my PhD program, that's exactly what I'm realizing. The world is a very big place, especially religiously. There's a lot of people. I mean, I'm focusing on American religion and just within American religion, American Christianity, there are so many different denominations and splits off of these denominations, yet they all kind of have this fundamental idea, especially in 19th century America, that God is reachable, that we can obtain the miraculous, that we can actually talk with God face to face, that we can have these miraculous experiences. It's not just the Latter-day Saint movement, it's several movements. So it really broadened my horizon in a sense where kind of getting back to what we were talking about earlier, where I'm realizing, you know what? I like learning about other religions and recognizing that, yeah, we're different, but we're also very much the same. So what ended up happening for me to go to school was, I felt, should I apply for graduate school? Should I go get my PhD? And I actually tested God. I said, okay, God, if this is really what you want me to do. This is getting, yeah. laying out his fleece. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just like to see if it's going to get uh, damp or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's Gideon, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so what ends up happening is I say, God, if you really want me to do this, I'm going to ask this person who I really haven't talked to about it. I'm just going to ask them this weird question and say, have you ever thought about me going to graduate school as a family friend? And I asked her, I said, have you ever thought about me going to get my PhD in history and maybe focus on religion? And she says, you know what? It's so funny that you would ask that because just a week or two ago, that thought popped in my head out of nowhere when I was at work and I actually started looking at PhD programs for you. And she goes, it was the weirdest thing. And I went, 
okay, that's weird. <laughs> I mean, it was not what I ex- was expecting at all. Other people keep answering your prayers for you. <laughs> yeah, basically, right. So what ends up happening is I apply to one of the universities near my house. And you know, I, I had a, a book manuscript that was being published. I had published some other things. I had done some teaching. I thought, you know, I might have a good shot at getting into the school. And I didn't get in. And I was heartbroken and really upset because I'm thinking I have this experience, but it didn't pan out. So then I said, I actually, like, I even asked the schools, like, just want to know what was wrong with my application so, you know, I can maybe improve it for next time. And they said to me, several of them said, Daniel, your application got high marks, but what you're interested in, we just don't have anybody to work with you. So Mm -hmm. I was heartbroken. I thought maybe I was wrong. Maybe I didn't hear God right. Well, then that kind of, there was just this fire in me to say, no, I'm going to keep looking. So I ended up looking, going back to what you had said earlier, I found this this uh, this professor in, uh, or what they call lecturers in England. I found this academic. He focused on millennialism. William Bickerton was a millennialist. I thought maybe we can start correspondence. I started talking with him. Long story short, what would have taken me about four years or four or five years to get a PhD within the school that I wanted to go to my advisor was willing to look at my book manuscript and he read it and said, this is really good. We can use this as part of your dissertation. And it cut my PhD program in half and I saved all this money. And then I realized, oh, maybe God did. See, that was what was really interesting for me was that I, I realized that God sometimes tells us to do something. But then it doesn't really pan out the way we think it's going to. But then that drives us to do something else. And then it works out. So God sometimes doesn't always give us what we're asking for right away. He kind of makes us search for it and kind of makes us have this journey that tests us in a lot of ways. And that's what I really enjoy now studying American religion is because, like we're saying, the world is a really big place. And I'm really starting to realize that, you know what, maybe, you know, some religions can be very exclusive. But I'm starting to recognize, you know what, we're all God's children. And even though I'm a historian, I try to be objective. I can also take that hat off and just be spiritual for a moment and just say, you know what, I really believe God loves us all and he's willing to work with all of us. And I think he will work with all of us until his plan sees fit where, you know, however he wants to kind of unite us. Hopefully the big part is love, I think. And (laughs) so hopefully we can figure that one out. Here's a question for you. You may not even have an answer for this, but in case you do, what answer are you waiting on from God? Or what thing do you think I'm having to have faith in? I don't know. I don't understand. Are there things like that? Oh, for sure. There's a few things. There was one thing that I had where I, I can say that I had the result. My dad, a couple of years ago, got this disease, this weird disease called Guillain-Barre. I never even heard of it. Apparently, he got it from eating chicken, and the chicken had this whatever uh, bacteria that was in it. And all of a sudden, he it makes your immune system attack your body. And it's so weird. And I've never seen, my dad was pretty, a fairly healthy guy from all my life. And to see him in this, not only where things not working and his body is, his legs aren't working, you know, it's attacking the nervous system basically of your body. But he had this really weird form of Guillain-Barre where it was affecting his brain. He hadn't slept for days and he was hallucinating. He was wailing his arms all over the place. The doctors tried this first treatment on him once they finally figured out what it was because they didn't know what it was at first. It took him a couple days. 
And then once they finally figure it out, they try the treatment that's supposed to fix it and it doesn't work. And I could see in the doctor's eyes that they're trying, they're concerned because they don't really know what to do. And they're thinking that this might be a really rare form of Guillain-Barre and death is on the table. And I just remember, forgive me, I just remember um, wondering if he was going to, if he was going to live and something in me said, he's going to live, but he kept getting worse Hmm. in the middle of the night. I have a friend of the family I called and he was able to kind of stay up with me. And my dad's flailing his arms. They, they, they're trying to tie him down and he would like come out of the, the, you know, the ties and was flailing his arms would not, he couldn't sleep. He would always be in this weird, like twilight stage where he wasn't really awake, but he wasn't really asleep and he would just not stop moving. And I really, really thought maybe he is going to die, even though I had this feeling that he wasn't, or I was told that. And I audibly out loud, because my dad was just going crazy and we couldn't hold him down. My dad's a pretty strong guy, especially with his arms. You can't hold him down. And I said, God, where are you? And my dad, who's mumbling and not saying, he's just not saying anything. It's all, it's all nonsense. Very clearly and quietly says, He's already taken care of it. And then he starts flailing his arms and mumbling. Your again. dad says this. Yeah, audibly. And the friend of the family saw that. And it was not too long after that. He finally, finally fell asleep after days of not sleeping. And then he slept for like 10 hours. And when he woke up, he was back in his right mind again. And then the doctors were able to kind of figure out a treatment and he came out of it. And I felt so ashamed because I felt like, you know, I had to cry out to God, where are you? And then my father in his sickness had to say, hey, you know, he's already taken care of it. And then I said to God, you know, I'm sorry. And I heard this voice say to me, I'm teaching you to see with your spiritual eyes and not your natural eyes. And Boy, because what you were seeing was not agreeing with no, what you had felt. No. And uh, so in life, you, you know, even though there's there are some things even now that I still sometimes wonder, you know, did God really want me to do that? Or was that really the right idea? But now I sometimes have to remind myself, and it, believe me, my wife can tell you, she's the one reminding me often to sometimes see with my spiritual eyes and not my natural eyes that, you know, sometimes we really do have to follow our heart in life. And I'm realizing that sometimes it's worth taking the risk and it's okay being wrong because if you're following your heart, you're always doing what you feel is right. Sometimes I'm realizing that maybe that is seeing with your spiritual eyes. Maybe that's what God was trying to tell me. Follow what your heart is telling you to do, not what your mind is telling you to do. You know, the reality sometimes can seem so dark, but if there's hope, there's a way. I mentioned that you're a deacon in the Church of Jesus Christ. What does that mean to be a deacon? Basically, my job as a deacon is to love the members, or at least that's how I interpret it. Um, there's some other things we're supposed to do. You know, we're supposed to make sure that during the meeting, the the membership is comfortable during the service. Um, we're supposed to go visit the sick. But I don't really like to follow those uh, traditional roles as a deacon, even though, I mean, of course, those are important things, especially with, like I said, studying history. And because I studied history and because I'm going to graduate school, I'm able to travel and talk to people that aren't and studying other religious traditions that aren't mine. I'm able to talk to other people 
And I feel like that's been my calling as a deacon in a sense, just to learn into that idea of loving people. I love talking to people and learning about them and seeing what they have to say about their religions. And I feel like in a weird way, I'm fulfilling that calling. I don't know, some people might disagree with me on that, but at least for my personal journey, I feel like that's what I'm supposed to do. And it's just been a lot of fun and I don't want to stop. So, you know, sometimes the other things that I, unfortunately, I sometimes I'm away from home because of it and I'm not able to do the things that I'd like to do, like go visit the sick or do other things like that. But I'm able to do something else that when I'm home, I'd like to do that in those moments where I can. But when I'm gone, I feel like I'm fulfilling this goal, this aspiration of mine that really isn't mine. It's something that is driving me to do something. And I'm not really sure what it is. I just want to learn as much as I can from other people and what they believe. Well, you said having fun and not wanting to stop. That pretty much describes this conversation for me. Oh, thanks. <laughs> our time is drawing to a close here. Daniel Stone I mentioned a deacon in the Church of Jesus Christ, sometimes known as the Bickerton Knights, a Ph.D. candidate studying American religious history at Manchester Metropolitan University in England, and the author of the new book, William Bickerton, Forgotten Latter-day Prophet. Daniel, a pleasure. Thank you for speaking with me in Thanks, Good Steve. Faith. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners talk about the ideas presented by our guest, author Daniel P. Stone. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Have you ever felt guided to do something, and then the obstacles you faced made you wonder if it really was inspiration? And what destination or realization would make a challenging spiritual journey worth the effort? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Barbara Morgan Gardner is a religion professor at Brigham Young University. She married Dustin Gardner two years ago and is still giddy. She loves to travel mostly for the people, also for great sights and food. Andrew Woolston is a native Texan from Houston who works as a software developer at Chatbooks. Teresa Raymond is the closed captioning coordinator for BYU Broadcasting. She loves her family, reading, and researching strange facts on Google. Sam Payne taught religion to high school students for a dozen years. Today he tells stories on stage and on the radio and collects toy robots. Sure. So I am so excited to have heard Daniel Stone's interview and to be participating with him. He has become a dear friend of mine as I've gotten to know him working with Interfaith Outreach. He is a splendid person and a very wise and astute student and a phenomenal teacher. Uh, One of the things that Daniel said that I really feel close to with Daniel especially is, is he mentioned that he loves talking to people and learning about them. And he mentioned that that was part of his personal journey, and he wants to learn as much about people as he can. And and in learning about other people, he learns more about uh, God and also about himself. I resonate with that because in my experiences in life, I have had many opportunities to speak with people from a variety of faiths, and I have found that uh, not only do I enjoy them more and love them more, which is also something that Daniel talked about, but I find that my own knowledge of God and prayer and reading scriptural text 
expands, and I find this greater brotherhood with people as as we find so many elements of our faith that are in common. I appreciated Daniel sharing that, and I find that that is something with me that I appreciate so much is recognizing how much we have in common as as believers in of God, and that God does know us, and that He does care for us, and that He is real, and that we are related as members of the family, in mm-hmm. a sense. Yeah, there's a real sense throughout the conversation with Daniel. There's a real sense that he's very comfortable. He has a real sense of calling about him, right? And he and he feels like he feels very comfortable allowing the things that he feels called upon to do to be different than the things that his neighbors are called upon to do, you know? And there was a moment when he was talking about feeling called to tell the story of the founder of the church, you know, having that moment where he learns that the founder of the church wanted his story told and feeling called to do that, you know, feeling like it might be even a special responsibility of his to do. And it made me remember circumstances were such that I walked into a room only moments after the person in the room had died. We all knew she was going to die. It was a very elderly woman and she was being attended by her granddaughters. There were a bunch of granddaughters, seven granddaughters. They had all been sitting with her for half a day, but they, they, they sort of knew that that was going to be the day that she was going to pass away. As I talked to the granddaughters, I learned that every one of them, even though they had been sitting with their grandmother all day, that for one reason or another, they had all left the room. One had left the room to go get a glass of water. One had left the room because she wanted to take a picture of the sunset on the day that was certain to be the day of her grandmother's passing. You know, All seven of the granddaughters had been out of the room when she passed away. Mm. I had this really strong feeling that she had somehow arranged that, that, she, that, that this most personally intimate act you know, of passing from this life she had arranged to do on her own. And that was a really it was a really strong impression that I had. And I went to share that with these grieving granddaughters. And something said, no, that's a piece of the story that's been given to you, but you're not to share it now. Now's not the time to share that, you know. But I've always felt like there was kind of this piece of the story that was given to me and, and really to me only, you know. I resonated with his sense of calling. That seems like a simple calling to have. That seems like a pretty, but it was meaningful to me. On that same note, I remember on the idea of calling, but also his, his topic of, of his father finding out that he had a terminal illness and him, Daniel, kind of feeling that he needed to learn how to see with his spiritual eyes in a sense. I, I had a similar experience in 2014. So about four years ago, I was in Boston. I was living away and gone for a while. I didn't exactly know how long. And I received a phone call that my father had been diagnosed with terminal liver cancer. And I was I was frankly devastated. I had been with my mother as she passed away. I was a single person. Uh, I lived across the street, but frankly just moved into my parents' house to take care of them until my mom passed away. And I lived with my father for another year and felt that he was doing okay and, and left for a job assignment. And Again, while I was there, I found out he had terminal cancer, and I remember pleading with the Lord. They, they said he had terminal cancer, and he had a month, maybe two months to live. And I was still going to be out in Boston for a while with my job, and I remember pleading with the Lord, as I said, that he would live, mm-hmm. that I would be able to come home from my experience in Boston and be able to help him. 
And it was very, very difficult, very stressful, and frankly for me, very painful. And I like Daniel. I don't know that it was a voice, but it was a, a definite feeling as he kind of states. I don't even know how to put that into words, but it was a clear answer that God had already saved my father's life, hmm. that he actually was going to die eventually, but that my prayer had already been answered. Again, like Daniel, I remember hearing from the doctors and getting reports from my brothers and sisters and flying home, and the doctors just kept saying that he has, you know, one month, three weeks, taking him to the hospital and nothing. And I couldn't figure out how I had heard or felt such a strong impression, but yet the doctors and the family were saying something very different than what I had heard and doubting myself. And again, like Daniel, watching my dad as I went home to visit over Christmas, him shaking in his bed and literally watching him die. But then within a month or two, he was still alive. And then three months he was alive. And hmm. a year later he was alive. And now four years later, uh, although not a spring chicken by any means, <laughs> he's still very much alive, which again taught me, as Daniel was taught, that there are spiritual eyes and God does speak in ways differently than the world does. And and you can trust in those impressions or thoughts or feelings or whatever it is that, that is speaking to you. It, it is God, and as Daniel is, is stating, and he stated over and over again, God does speak today <laughs> if we're listening. When Sam was talking about his experience with the, the granddaughters, it made me think of an experience I had with my grandfather. He was dying of cancer, and this was down in California, and my mother and I had both gone down to California to be with him. My mom wanted some you know, moral support to be there. My mom and I have different faith belief systems. I really wanted an opportunity to talk to my grandfather, and sh I just really felt like I needed to talk to him and, and explain what my views were about the afterlife. I just felt like I wanted to give him some comfort. And I didn't know how to do that because I felt it might be offensive to my mother and I didn't want to step on her toes or interfere in any way. But a similar situation where all of a sudden we didn't have hospice care there. They all had to go. There was some scheduling conflict, and we were a couple hours without any care at all. And my mother had to go to the airport to pick up her husband, which all of a sudden left me in a situation that I did not think I would get to have. And I got to have this wonderful experience by his bedside, and I was able to just talk with him, give him comfort, reassurance, kind of, you know, what's going to happen and, and how you're going to be okay. He wasn't able to respond. Um, he was pretty far along. But it was just a really sweet experience, uh, just a very tender experience that I got to share with him. Daniel talked about God as a friend, and I think that so many times in my life, that being one of them, where God has been a friend. He's just been really aware of me and what I needed and has provided a miraculous way for that to happen. So I have a, a kind of a thought that goes along with this kind of line of thinking from you three. Daniel talked many times about how he had experiences where he could feel God's presence or he could feel a, a direct answer from God in some ways. And and in addition, being able to discuss that God sometimes, it's important to be able to listen to others and to be able to gain from the experiences of others. I grew up in, in Texas, in Houston. And in Houston, there was a, a variety of Christian faiths that were very 
very prevalent. You had the the Catholic faith was very strong, Methodist, the Baptist. It was very prominent throughout my high school and middle school years. And I remember just I had many friends that would invite me, oh, you should come along to our to our congregation, to a meeting. And I had the chance to attend several of these these meetings and, and sit down and talk with them. And I found that it was when I avoided shutting myself out from from their experiences, knowing, oh, I don't believe exactly how they do. Despite that, I would go along and I would be always be surprised in how by allowing my heart to be opened, I would always find something, oh, some some way that I can experience God, some way that I can experience prayer, some way that I can experience these things that for some reason I had never thought of before. And just by being with these people, it had allowed me to open my eyes a little bit more and experience God in ways that I that I had never thought of before. But at the same time, I also had times when people were not so <laughs> willing to share their experience before. And I remember one time I was I had uh, communicated with a friend and we had, we had kind of exchanged beliefs back and forth for a little while. And one time he invited me over and to his house just to hang out and to spend time. And, and I got there and his pastor of his church was there. Immediately, the pastor started speaking to me kind of negatively and, and things like that. But I, immediately, I, I had this overwhelming feeling of peace that I wasn't doing anything wrong and that God knew that I just wanted to to just be a friend to all these people and to truly experience what all what they were experiencing and that despite this one experience where it was a little negative I came out feeling positive because because my focus was on God and that was very enlightening to me and I've carried it through to this day where I try to understand and and learn from other beliefs in a in a way that can just heighten my own beliefs This is a conversation in good faith. Listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Daniel Stone. Find the full episode online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Now back to the conversation. Yeah, I was so delighted. We got this sort of juxtaposition, right, of him having a conversation with God in which God said, I've called you to be a historian of the Americas and my people, right? And, And you get that contrasted against the very earliest experience that he has with God when he says, God, please take away my sniffles, you know? <laughs> and, and, and it made me think, I mean, I feel certainly as though God speaks to my heart with regard to the biggest questions of my life. When I go to God in prayer, I don't very often, I don't very often end a prayer and hear silence, you know? There seems always to be, there seems most often to be something that's being said back to me. But... I have a friend who is in charge of teaching a number of very small children in Sunday school. And she had the parents of all of those children prepare one day one experience from their life where they felt like God had spoken to them. And those parents all came on the prescribed Sunday, you know, to church and were given a chance to each share their story. And every one of their stories was some version of I had lost my keys and God helped me find my keys, <laughs> you know, some version of that. And I just thought for all the comfort that I take when God provides for me in my heart, the answers to the biggest questions of my life is like the surest sign that God is there and loves me is that he helps me find my keys, you know, <laughs> these these tiny little these tiny little helps, you know, that I feel like in my life are from God. And often in direct response to prayer, often I'll say, 
God help me find my keys. <laughs> you know, and I find myself so continually delighted by those simple communications between God and his children. And they seem to be general among like all the people I know. Yeah, I agree. I mean, sometimes I truly do agree when Daniel talked about that experience when oh, God took away his cold. <laughs> and, and you look back at it and you can view it in a very lighthearted way. But on a deeper level, I, I do believe that God understands the needs of all of us. And sometimes what we personally see as a dire situation, losing our keys, having a cold, God understands those needs of, of all of us. A special way he is, he's able to come down to our level and take care of us at our very ungodlike level. <laughs> I had an experience which kind of like the sniffles can be seen very lighthearted. Uh, if you want to cut this later, feel free to do so. <laughs> Um, but I was a teacher at a school that was really close to me. So I walked to school every day. As I was walking down the street, I just felt this impression step off the sidewalk. So I did. And immediately a bird dropped a little present from the sky and it landed on the sidewalk right where I had been. I was, and I, I'm like, okay, that was why I had to get off the sidewalk. So I got back on the sidewalk and continued on to school. And while that is kind of a silly story because of what happened, I ponder about that. And, you know, how kind was God? (laughs) That wouldn't have ruined my life. I wouldn't have lost my job. Nothing horrid would have happened. just would have been unpleasant. But he took the time to take care of me in that little thing. And if he's going to take care of me in those little things, how much more is he going to take care of me in the things that really matter? I believe it's entirely reasonable to believe that God gives us some of those very minor experiences like that. So in moments like these, we can reflect back and gain a, a, better, a, more, a more enlightened appreciation of our, of our God. Yeah, yeah. Daniel had a moment where he was talking about trying to apply for his PhD program. And it's kind of on the same note that you're talking about where he said, he said, God sometimes tells us to do something and it doesn't work out, but then you change your plans and it works out. And I think that that is often the case where, at least in my life, I know I have had various occasions where I've taken something that seems so important and I've tried to get God to answer my prayer. You know, I had the same experience with a with a PhD program and applying for something that didn't work out. And but knowing that I was supposed to be in a PhD program, but at the same time, I found my keys that morning. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of the same thing I think that he's talking about. But then eventually, as Daniel starts, it seems like he's kind of honing in a little bit and asking more questions and finding out more information. He recognizes why he didn't get in, and that seems to be for Daniel the greater. Miracle in a sense. He was expecting something in the moment, but then as he learned a little bit more about himself and he learned a little bit more about the situation, he was able to change the situation and then God used him for that purpose. And then he recognizes, of course, he's going to be writing this history. I mean, it's like God gives him a little bit line upon line, but he expects everything at at the beginning. I would imagine with Daniel, knowing kind of the experience that he shared, I've never asked him this, but I imagine there are probably many times where he was finding keys and not receiving big answers, you know, even though with Daniel, you can tell that the Lord or God does seem to be very much involved in his life. I think looking back at my life and perhaps all of our lives and those who I've spoken with, uh, I agree that finding the keys or 
turning the right direction or some some small thing is God's way of showing us that he really is in charge of the details. It's just that his details and our details or his path and our path are not yet aligned, but eventually will be, and that he will take con- control and he'll help us through those times that seem so difficult. I remember the answer to this question better than I remember the question. The, I, I think the question was something like, did you ever come to a point in your life when you felt like you had to look elsewhere on the religious menu of the world, you know? His answer was really startling to me. The word he used was openness. He says, everything was so open in my church. He was left disinclined to look elsewhere. And the reason that he gave for that was because he was in an environment that he felt like was so open, that he felt like he could ask anything he felt like he had great freedom right where he was. And it was startling to me because I think in my own religious tradition, this is probably common of a lot of religious traditions. I think sometimes we kind of define ourselves by the closed circle in which we stand. You know, We look at the things inside the circle and we look at the things outside the circle and the things inside the circle are part of what I am and the things outside the circle are, part, are not part of what I am. You know, And this notion of the effect of openness being that it left him disinclined to look elsewhere was really startling to me. That's something I'm going to carry with me, I think. I agree with that. And I think he even said it was an exhilarating experience to be able to yeah. to see other religions and learn and that openness. I am grateful for an experience that perhaps is horrible. When I was when I was 11 or 12 years old, I was kind of an obnoxious Sunday school kid. And on a weekly basis, every Sunday, I got kicked out of Sunday school. And I lived in a place in Oregon where there were a number of churches right around me. So I started attending other churches as an 11-year-old. My parents didn't know. They were in their own meetings. And so I would just literally walk down the street and go to a variety of Christian and Jewish and other religions and just sat there for an hour, watched kind of the clock, and then ran back before my parents knew that I was gone. And I remember on one occasion saying to my dad, Dad, I don't know if what you guys believe in is true anymore. And my dad's answer was so classic at the time. And he didn't know that I'd been visiting all these different religions. And he said, well, it's about time you figured that out then. Let me know how I can help. And Mm -hmm. and I remember thinking as a kid, he's leaving it to me? I mean, doesn't he know? And as an adult, I realize now, had he said something to the effect of, well, this is the only way and you need to follow this pattern, I probably would have rebelled because I had already visited all these churches without them knowing. But his answer was classic. And I think that that's similar with, with Daniel. The more he saw, the more he fortified what he also already believed in, but it allowed him to be open to other religions and recognize that there is so much truth and so much commonality in all these other religions. He was just grateful for what he personally had at that time. For me, I think it's critical uh, as we look at other religions, even in our own religion, is that we see the good everywhere and we find that exhilarating. We find that fun. But at the same time, we are trying to learn a little bit more also about who we are. And hopefully that will strengthen other people as we become more fortified in our faith. Almost the first thing that Daniel said, he talked about how as a child he had been taught that God is a a friend, someone that you can talk to. That's not the way people have always looked on God, (laughs) you know? I mean, that's, that's not even always the God that you find in Scripture. It made me think about that wrestle, to discover whether your ideas about God say a lot about what God actually is or whether they say more about you, (laughs) you know? I read an article years ago that has stuck with me about 
paintings of Jesus. And the person who wrote the article was an artist himself and was talking about how paintings of Jesus have tended always to be of the cultural ideal of what guys should be like, <laughs> you know. And sometimes you see these muscular, physically strong portrayals of Jesus and sometimes you see these softer and tender portrayals of Jesus always kind of in lockstep with what the ideal for human people is, you know. It made me kind of prioritize in my own kind of belief this sort of search, this kind of constant wondering if when I'm looking at God, whether I'm just kind of creating a God that has a lot of characteristics that I want God to have, <laughs> you know, or, or if I'm really looking at or if I'm really looking at the way that God is working in my life and, and allowing him to have the characteristics that he in fact has, you know. And I, th I thought about that. I thought about the friend that Daniel has seemed to discover in God as he displays this characteristic of conversing with God, you know. I, I thought that was very lovely. I remember as a child on that same note, probably five, five years old in first grade, kindergarten or first grade, and my we were babysitting a a friend of mine, we babysat him for a few years, and we were standing in the backyard of our home again in Oregon, and we were in this little corner by these arbovita bushes. And I remember looking up with him into the sky, and there were clouds all around. And I don't remember why we got on this topic, but I remember my little friend saying, I think God is all around us right now. And I remember thinking, that, that is so cool. And then he kind of went on to explain what he felt about God and, and how he imagined God. And and then I remember saying, yeah, I think God's here too. And, and he said, well, what do you think God's like? And we were just five, five or six. And I remember saying, I think God's kind of like my dad. He's just kind and friendly and loving and he cares about us. And sometimes I wish as an adult I would remember what I knew as a five-year-old and remember and think about what my friend knew as a five-year-old and similar to what Daniel's saying and see God as this friend who loves us and cares about us. That Daniel talked about that so much, this idea of love again. And, and it's nice to be reminded that as we're talking that sometimes we do paint this picture of what our culture says that God is, but in reality, God really is someone who does care for us and who does know us and wants to be a part of our lives, even if it isn't just finding keys. Um, I think with I think it's probably the case with many faith traditions. With, it, with thinking of your idea, Sam, of, of being inside of group, you know, I'm the inside of this group and everybody else is outside. And that defining you, I think that as everybody like looks closer to their own faith tradition, as they get deeper into it, they get out of that surface and they I think we all kind of come to that conclusion that God is so kind, he is so loving, and that opens the circle, if you will, of being able to see that he loves me and he loves everyone. Every single person has is loved and cherished by God. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Barbara, Andrew, Teresa, Sam, and especially to author Daniel P. Stone for generously sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. Our associate producer is Rachel Sherman. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon, right here, In Good Faith. <laughs>